This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast, that is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc., Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now, I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm, and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend Foundations, where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology, knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders in shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, This is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. 
So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show Marine, actor, author, and renowned military technical advisor, Captain Dale Dye. Now, in this second conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from his experiences visiting Normandy beaches, his project No Better Place to Die, reflecting back on the Band of Brothers, mental health, and his powerful perspective of his latest project, Masters of the Air. Now, before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Captain Dale Dye. Enjoy. Well, Captain Dye, I want to first say thank you so much for coming on the show. The last time we talked, I think, was six years ago, over six years ago. You were one of, I think you were episode, um, I forget what it was, 34, I think. So that's literally within the first year of the podcast. So firstly, I just want to welcome you back today. So where are we finding you on planet Earth? Well, I'm in uh, South Central Texas. Uh, I finally had to give up Hollywood, Richard. I mean, I just, uh, the rat race and, the you know, the, plastic banana lifestyle out there uh, years ago when I started all of this, uh, I kind of had to be in LA, but I no longer do that. I'm, I'm at a position where they'll come get me wherever I am. Uh, so we moved to Texas to a little uh, town just south of Austin, the state capital, and uh, a house uh, that was built in 1915, beautiful old place and, uh, and got some land on it. And, uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying myself out of the out of the Hollywood rat race. Absolutely, it seemed like um, we'll get to this. The 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 COVID era kind of reframed the the way some people saw the cities that they lived in, and also though I think it really empowered a lot of people in the virtual world that you didn't have to be chained to your workplace; that you could be a little bit more dynamic. Yeah, yeah if there if there's a if there's a, a bright side to that whole COVID nonsense. Uh, that's it. I mean, people just realized that they could work from anywhere, uh, assuming the technology works and helps out. And, and I guess I'm, I'm part of that. So I would love to kind of unpack that. Um, listening, and obviously this is fresh in my mind because I literally just listened to it this morning, but you were optimistic about community coming together, about the strengthening of the first responder professions and you know the way that we view law enforcement. And we talked six years ago. So obviously, as the last few years unfolded, I witnessed, you know, a fragmentation of our community and a, a demonization of our law enforcement. So what has been your observation through that lens of the last few years? Well, it's been precisely that. 
and it's disappointing. It's tremendously disappointing. Um, you know, I, I think like a, like a fish that's been left out too long, it tends to rot from the head. Uh, and, and I think in, in many of our uh, major urban police departments, that's been the case. It's even been the case in our military in a, in a, lot, of, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, we've somehow, and, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to explore this, uh, so I'm not sure that I'm going to get a definitive answer here, but um, in, in some ways, it seems to me that uh, we have done something in our society that has caused us to lose confidence in the one thing that we were always so confident in, the one place we could turn for help, the one place we could turn for kindred spirits, if you will. And that was our major law enforcement folks, uh, up to and including the FBI and the Department of uh, the Attorney General uh, and, and our military. And, and I, I can't really pin down why that happens, but it's clear to me that it has. I mean, Lord, you look at, look at our, our major urban police departments. They can't keep cops on the street. And, and who, who can blame the cops? I mean, they're literally on the chopping block every time they roll out of the station house. So I don't know where that comes from, but I do know that it's got to be correct. Now, with this kind of lens that you have, obviously, from the military to to the, the film um, uh, professions, I mean, you have pretty diverse lens on, on a lot of things now. What... What do we need to do next? I mean, the, the problem I think that we see a lot in, in news stations and on social media is blame storming. Everyone's pointing their finger at someone else. What can we as a nation do to, to start getting our feet back under us from this last pandemic, whatever people's experience was, and rebuild those communities and get behind the men and women that leave their families to go protect either their communities or their country? Well, look, I, I perceive there is a, a, a pendulum effect to this thing. We've gone so far out to the extreme uh, on the liberal side uh, that, that really eroded support for superstructures like uh, uh, the American law enforcement uh, establishment, the military, and so on and so forth. We've gone, we've gone so far out that I'm gradually seeing it swing back, and people understand and this is where the answer to your question comes in. People are now beginning to understand that we've, we're, we're in a circular firing squad here. I mean, we're shooting ourselves in the foot continuously. Part, part, we're a nation of laws. And part of that is a responsibility to respect those laws. And in doing so, you've got to respect the people who enforce those laws. So the answer, the direct answer to your question is, I think we have to have patience it pisses us off. I know that. I get it. Um, and, and we're losing massive amounts of really fine uh, police officers um, at, at all levels. And, and that's going to be a shame because we're going to have to rebuild. And the answer to your question is we've got to, A, recognize that that's a problem. And B, embark on whatever is necessary to rebuild those forces law enforcement, the military, and that sort of thing, and rebuild them in the image that America expects, not in some liberal dream of, you know, kumbaya and, and dance around the maypole. That's just not the way it works. Uh, and I think Americans, uh, you and me, and, uh, and that great unwashed area out there that we call uh, the American public, are going to have to A, recognize the problem, and B, embark on rebuilding 
And that involves money as everything does. But more importantly, what it what it involves is when we ask a young man or woman to become a police officer um, or engage, uh, you know, be a law enforcement officer, Leo, or when we ask them to join the military, they need to feel confident that this is a noble profession and they're not sticking their head in the the lion's mouth just to get chopped off. Uh, So we've got to restore that confidence and then, uh, uh, communicate that confidence to the young men and women who we expect to do the job. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that it's funny when we talk about masculinity, I always go back to band of brothers, which you were deeply involved with the facade of masculinity of some of our, um, you know, superheroes I grew up with, you know, the Schwarzeneggers and the, uh, sure. the, um, Rockies and all those. When you look at band of brothers, you know, not only do you see the dramatization of their heroism, but you also see the vulnerability. You have these men that decades and decades and decades later are still moved to tears by what they saw, who they lost, what they had to do. And so I had the absolute honor recently of interviewing three World War II veterans. Um, One was Frank Wright, who was on Iwo Jima. That was a full podcast like this. And then I did a fireside chat, um, a live interview on stage with two other Marines. Well, Don Graves was a Marine, and then John Boswell was a Navy corpsman. And ironically enough, Frank had written a book on his mental health, which was a really interesting thing. Um, When I spoke to Don and John, presenting this uh, description that we give them, the greatest generation, they just rolled their sleeves up. You could see the pain in these men's face to this day and how it was buried down. So I didn't have this perspective last time we spoke, but now, you know, here we are, we're losing our World War II veterans. We've kind of projected on them that they were fine. They just went back to work. And now I meet some of these men in person, you realize that there was a lot of pain. It was the same, same experience that other soldiers have coming home. What is your view on that generation and, you know, the post-traumatic stress, as we talked about before, moral injury um, and their ability to heal from that, even though we're really having this conversation way too late? Well, look, I agree with you. Uh, It's a misinterpretation. And and I've hell, I was born during the war and uh, that's how old I am. And uh, uh, I know hundreds of these young from my family and from other families and so on and so forth. And it's wrong for us to assume or to depict that that experience at war, regardless of the state of the national psyche, um, was not painful and psychologically damaging. It was. And, uh, and, and practically across the board in some fashion, it was psychologically damaging. The key is, the difference is that those young men as they aged, uh, handled it better. You know, bravery is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to handle that fear and to continue what you're doing. And that's what they had. They realized that. Now, a lot of them were relatively uh, uneducated, and so they couldn't have told you that definition. But they realized it inherently, that, that part of masculinity, part of your responsibility to a nation is to handle that fear. And it doesn't mean you don't have it. It means you learn to handle it and get on with things. And we need to we need to reexamine that lesson, I think. Well, it was interesting as well, because you hear a lot of them did dive into alcohol for a while. I mean, and, and Don and um, yeah, John both talked about that. There was a period where they really, 
you know, went the wrong way, arguably, but then they were able to navigate. Obviously, some people don't. And it's 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 been an eye-opening where granddad of a lot of these, you know, guests that come on the show actually was, you know, an alcoholic, was, you know, abusive. So I think that, you know, that post-traumatic growth would have been so invaluable to them as well as it is today, rather than, you know, the the kind of shove it down and just get on with life because for some of us we're able to process it and i absolutely agree that process trauma becomes a strength it truly becomes a superpower but if it's unaddressed it becomes cancerous yeah it does you're correct um it you know self-medicating whether it's with alcohol or today is more likely to be with drugs um is not an uncommon thing especially on people who have uh, who've been through trauma uh, the key is uh, not to try to do it alone. And Lord knows how many people I've talked to that, uh, and, and my own experience, uh, you cannot do this alone and you must not try to do it alone. Uh, that's, that's a dark path and it, you'll just continue on it till you kill yourself. Um, it, it has to do with, I think we may have uh, touched on this the last time we talked, but it has to do with uh, your ability, I think, to, to, say that to recognize that you're on the wrong path and to go to somebody and uh, you know don't let that don't that let that traumatic experience sit inside your guts and eat at you to the point that you seem self-medication seems to be the only outlet um we had we had that experience in world war ii we had that experience in korea we had that experience in vietnam and we certainly had it after the middle east the difference is we now recognize it for what it is. Whereas back then, <clears throat> well, he's a little shell-shocky. There's a whole hell of a lot more to it than that. And uh, and this business of self-medicating, this, this business of trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you got to have some help. And look, what, we, what I'm discovering uh, today, and I, I think it probably goes across the board, is that uh, so many veterans... And, and police officers who, who faced uh, trauma uh, in, a, in a gunfight uh, or in a shooting or in a high-speed chase automobile accident, uh, there is a tendency to swallow that. There's a tendency to say, well, look, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a risky profession. Uh, I should be able to handle this sort of thing. I shouldn't talk about it. That's a weakness. Well, that's silly. You've got to talk about it. Uh, now, you don't need to lie down on a fainting couch and clutch your pearls and talk to some professional, but you need to uh, talk to somebody who uh, who gets it. And who gets it? Well, other soldiers get it. Uh, other police officers get it. And you those support groups, although that's, that's formalizing them, it's really just an individual thing. Let me talk to you about what I went through. Maybe you went through it. Or maybe I can, in, in just talking about it, Maybe I can broom some of the horror. And I find that that works. And it, it takes you away from the self-medication thing, uh, which is disaster. Absolutely. Another interesting element, and this goes all the way through to you know modern day warriors, is the homecoming. And again, I think we romanticized about World War II. Yes, some of our military did come back to ticker tape parades, but some of them went back to smaller towns where they just went home. But the the worst stories that I've heard, and Major James Capers has been on the show. That's one, you know, I mean, an incredible man, and his homecoming story is horrendous. Lying there, um, 
you know, wounded on a on a, a tarmac as when he gets back on home soil and gets urinated on. Um, and then um, Rich Rice is another one. He was a Delta guy at the time um, and came back and similar thing, getting spat on. What was your homecoming like from Vietnam um, in contrast to maybe what you'd heard some of these military members coming back from World War II? Well, look, um, I'd heard those stories and uh, especially Vietnam, which was my major homecoming thing. Um, the nation had turned against the war and there was great anti-war sentiment running throughout the nation. And, and I knew it was coming. I, I could see it right outside the gates. And I said, you know what? If I get out there and get angry, I'll kill somebody or kill myself or something. So I, I'm not going to do it. And for 10 years, um, much, much to my detriment, for 10 years, I didn't. I absolutely would not. I wouldn't talk to civilians, regardless of who they were. I just wasn't interested in what I knew or presumed I knew they were going to say. So I avoided it. And that led to self-medication. And that led to uh, uh, some pretty horrible experiences. Uh, and eventually, I understood that it's not their fault. They can't be expected to understand what I went through. And hell, what I, what I went through and what most people at war or, or police officers who've been in serious situations on the streets, what, what they've been through, you can't expect the average Joe citizen to understand that. And you shouldn't expect it. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't expect them to respect it, that you should. Uh, but in order to build that respect, you've got to explain it to them. You got to say, listen, this is what happened. This is how it felt. Uh, and it bites me. It hurts me. You do that and you'd be surprised at the support that, that emerges. Absolutely. I had no idea. It was the typical reaction that you get. Well, and this happens with, with my profession, the fire service. You know, people are so disconnected from what we actually do, you know, to the point where they ask in 2024, why is there a fire engine on my medical call? Well, because it's full of paramedics. That's why, you know, the yeah. ambulance is coming as well. Um, so where was I going to go with that? Oh, my God, I just lost my train of thought. Um, oh, there we go. So since we spoke... We had the withdrawal from Afghanistan that was very jarring, kind of um, parallel Vietnam. Um, what was yeah. your perspective of that? And what would you say to the men and women that served in that conflict um, now as we're sitting here on the other end of it? Well, I've said a lot uh, to them, uh, not so much publicly, because it's not a public thing. It's a private thing. Um, but. You're right when you say that the parallels between our withdrawal in Vietnam and our withdrawal in the Middle East and uh, Afghanistan um, were some, very similar. Um, it leaves you frustrated. It's uh, coitus interruptus. You know, I mean, nothing. You, there's no end in sight. You don't know what what the hell did all this mean? And that's deadly. If you can't find a meaning to your sacrifice a purpose to your sacrifice. If that's jerked out from underneath you, as it was uh, by uh, the uh, uh, Nixon administration in Vietnam and, and it, as it did in the Biden administration in Afghanistan, uh, that makes it tough. That makes the road really rough, really rugged. And the key is, if there is one, I, it, it's, it's an individual thing. But the key is to talk about it. The key is to find somebody, one of your one of your mates that was with you in this sort of thing. You know, just that commiseration, 
just that validation that comes from the other guy, the guy that you know so well saying, yeah, I feel the same way. Isn't that a bitch? Now what? Just that validation that what you're feeling is okay. What you're feeling is perfectly human, perfectly logical. And he feels that way too. Absolutely. Yeah. When I ask, you know, stories from deployments and again, not the, you know, did you kill the usual stuff that we actually touched on last time? Um, but, you know, the, the, <laughs> The things that you witness that justify what you were doing, regardless of politics, and then the kindness and compassion on the battlefield, too, which you never hear. And when you hear those over and over and over again, they did so much when they were there. And I think it's just reminding themselves because there's nothing worse than being betrayed by the very organization that you swore an oath to join. Sure. And and that brings you to... Uh kind of why I got involved in motion picture storytelling and television storytelling to begin with. Uh, it, it occurred to me that uh, that's the kind of experience that people have either in law enforcement or in the military that never gets any light. Nobody ever understands that. And that's, you know, we're, look, we're a media saturated society. You're part of that. Um, and and the, the deal is that they're going to, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. They're going with the headlines and that sort of thing. And it, it's to the detriment and to the, the totally ignoring of, of those good things that happened uh, during the deployment. Um, I want to shine some light on those good things. It's a difficult task because some of that is not very exciting uh, and doesn't make great movies or great reading or great listening. But it needs to be done because it validates the experience. And I think that's something that we desperately need. Absolutely. Well, again, Band of Brothers, I mean, when I ask, you know, favorite TV show or film on this, this it's Band of Brothers over and over and over and over again. I actually got uh, Shane Taylor on the show probably about a year ago now who played Doc Rowe. So yeah. before we move into, um, you know, the more recent projects, what were some of the memories of working with Shane? Because it was so interesting hearing him talking about you. It'd be kind of cool to hear the other way. Okay. Well, look, he was, uh, he was a bit confused going into this. Shane had no military background, no military experience. And I was literally shoehorning him into the business of being, you know, a medic. And, and I had to make him soldier first and then medic second. And, uh, he was, he was really open to it, but, but he had a, a seminal moment. He had, he had one of those epiphanies, uh, when I talked to him and I said, Look, Doc, what you've got to do is assume that you're a doctor that's just hanging out his shingle in some remote village in England, and you're the only game in town. People are going to come to you with everything from a bee sting to, you know, a brain surgery. You got to be that guy. And in order to be that guy, you've got to really get to know better than anybody else. You've got to get to know your soldiers. What are their foibles? What are their weaknesses? What are their what are the things they are subject to? Is there somebody here with asthma? Something that you've got to watch. And when I did that, you could see his eyes light up. He got the analogy. He said, oh, I'm the I'm the neighborhood doc. And I said, that's right. And you're the first line of defense. And the additional burden that you have, and this really got to it, this additional burden you have is you're, you're all they've got to talk to. You're all they've got. They're not going to talk to the guy in the foxhole next to them. They're not going to tell him that they've got a headache or that they feel lousy. 
but they will tell you. And that's a very special burden. And so once, once we got to the point with Shane where he, he understood that that was his take on being a company medic, his eyes light up. I mean, everything else then made sense. Um, and, and he really, he got on the horse. I mean, he rode it. And, and, uh, and he's, he's been a great friend ever since we had him in training. And I've seen him at, at reunion events and all that sort of thing. And he's, he's just a good man. He's a terrific man. Very talented. But he sees those, he's a dramatist. He understands those, those things. And, uh, and he always did. I could always look at him when I was conducting classes during training for Band of Brothers. And I could, if, if Doc was getting it, if Shane was getting it, then everybody else was. <laughs> so he was, kind of my, he was kind of my thermometer. Yeah, it was amazing hearing him talk. I mean, he mentioned about, you know, the, the medical bag becoming, you know, the, the nucleus of his whole world um, to the point where even when you weren't shooting, people were coming to him with boo-boos and he was having to dress them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Absolutely. That scene, that, that scene with the, uh, was it the Belgian nurse? Was it Bastoyne? I think, um, I oh, mean, yeah. just That's so, hard. so powerful. And as a paramedic myself, even though it's not in wartime, that bond between, you know, medics and nurses in a hospital when we've just fought to, to save someone. You're, who not can relate. Paramedic to tell me. You're not the first paramedic to tell me that. Um, I've, I've talked, in fact, I talked to some EMT guys here in, in little Lockhart, Texas, and they were talking about, oh, we recognize you from Band of Brothers. And I said, yeah. He said, who, who is that medic? And I said, it was Shane. And I would tell them the story about it. And if they've always, I guess paramedics just gravitate to that. And they'll, they'll talk about that, the uh, Belgian nurse, uh, and how he was, it was the only other person who was performing the acts of mercy that he was. And so they, they just immediately meshed. And she, by the way, was brilliant in her role. I saw they, they just had a reunion recently, didn't they, where they met each other, I think, 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was with Shane in, uh, in uh, Bastogne in Belgium. And uh, she showed up. And it was magic, absolute magic. They were just boom together. And shoot, they were at the graveside of the real woman, who was the, the angel of Bastogne. Beautiful. So we're going to get to COVID and the impact of shooting your most recent project. But what was interesting was I didn't realize the Band of Brothers was initially released in 2001, shortly before 9-11. So, and he was, he was kind of indicating that really it was a 10-year anniversary that gave it this massive boost. Talk to me about that through your eyes. You put all this you know, work in. You've been working since the inception of the project. It's finally done. And again, no one's going to have any ill feeling about the tragedy apart from you know, the actual event itself. But from a filmmaker's perspective, what was that journey like? And then what was that kind of second upsurgence like for you? Well, it, the phone lines lit up. All of the young guys who'd worked on Band of Brothers and all that sort of thing said, God, they've blown us off the stage. Nobody will pay any attention. Uh, and I said, you know, I think you're wrong. And I said, the reason you're wrong is it, it's, it's a tragic moment like this, like 9-11. People are looking for reassurance. They're looking for righteousness. And Band of Brothers shows that. And it turned out I was right. Uh, it didn't, despite the depravity of the incident, it didn't bother us at all in, in the ratings. People were tuned in. Well, I think it's it was 
perfect timing in a way, because especially, you know, when you had the 10 year anniversary, it really got put in front of us again. By that point, you'd had a lot of Americans in, you know, in combat wearing our uniform. So I would hope that it was, you know, an asset to them knowing their story was being told, even though it was a previous conflict, but also educating the civilians of the world of what combat actually looked like and, and a version of what our men and women were experiencing now in the Middle East. It's, it's probably one of the one of the most gratifying experiences I have. Uh, I talk to a lot of people in uniform. Um, and uh, the amazing thing to me is they'll all say, you know, Band of Brothers was a, was a big thing. I said, well, why? Well, it just, it was the right stuff. Yeah, it was the right stuff. And you're the right stuff too. Um, and so I, I kind of use that to shoehorn my my opinion and, and, and help them regain a little self-confidence. So look, those were you. Those were you in the 1940s uh, at 19, 18 years old. You remember being 18 or 19 years old, don't you? And of course they do. And I said, well, it was just, it's the same deal. You're that guy. And one of these days, um, we're going to be involved in doing a mini series about you and what you did. Um, so where Band of Brothers um, sort of sheds, shines some light on that, our lack of understanding, um, it's great stuff. And, and believe me, I have gone nowhere in the military that I don't hear about it. I mean, everybody loves Band of Brothers, and they'll, they'll get right down to an individual incident and scene and say, well, what was this? Sometimes I can't remember, but I'll try <laughs> to come up with something. What about Generation Kill? I had Bobby Burke on a couple of times now. He's, he's become a good friend. And then Rudy Reyes, another you know amazing Marine. Um, I saw, if I'm not mistaken, you guys shared a stage in a fireside chat, you and Rudy. Did you have any interaction with that project? I did, uh, and I would have liked to have. Um, but I think they, they had the, the authors and the real guys there, and they, and they kind of filled my role. Um, so I've become kind of the history of war guy, not the current guy, because I didn't serve in Afghanistan. The closest I got was Beirut, Lebanon in 82, 83. Um, so I'm not that guy. Now, I have been called on to work on some of those projects, and when I do, I always try to call somebody or talk to somebody who's actually been there and say, look, this is what I think. This is what I believe. What's the real deal? And they, they'll tell me. And, and, and then I try to translate that to film. So as I touched on the beginning of the interview, when we spoke last, you were just crowdsourcing for No Better Place to Die. So walk me through where you got with that project and then, you know, if, if we can still expect it or if it's uh, kind of on the hold pattern at the moment. It's been on a hold pattern for 10 years um, and it continues to be. I've had every producer who has a sympathetic bone in his body uh, tell me that that's, that's a great story. That defense of Lafayette by the 82nd Airborne uh, is a story that needs to be told. And I said, yeah, and here it is. Now, what the problem is, um, and I'm hoping that in some ways Masters of the Air will help solve this. The problem is that, you know, to do it right, and I wouldn't want to do it if we didn't do it right, it takes $30, $35 million. That's a lot of money. Uh, we're in, a, in an era of streaming. Um, so theatrical release is not a big thing, or not the big thing it used to be. 
and so it's difficult to get people to cough up that much money. Uh, they'll cough up a little bit, but I have to turn that down because the last thing in the world I would I should ever do is to bring out something that I wrote, something that's a story like that, and then just make it garbage because we didn't have enough money to, you know, we had to do it on a shoestring. I won't do that. So it remains active. It remains alive. Um, and it remains without a guy who's got enough faith to raise $35 million to give it to me to do this. Now, what about the crew you've been working, Tom Hanks and Spielberg? That's, that's not something that they've grabbed onto yet. I have been pitching it regularly to them. And Tom, uh, Tom Hanks uh, signed on as executive producer just to see if that would help the process along. And it, it, got, it got us some more interest, but it didn't get us a big check. Um, and, you know, I've talked to, I saw Stephen and Tom uh, in L.A. Uh, for the premiere of this thing a week ago. Uh, and uh, I was hesitant to kind of take the shine off Masters of the Air to talk about No Better Place to Die, my project. Uh, but they're aware of it. Um, and I'm hoping that if Masters of the Air really lights it up, if folks really love this thing, um, then I'll be the, the first kid right outside the door with this script and saying, how about this one now? And, and hopefully I'll get it done before I croak, but we'll see. Well, I think there's there's more of a demand now. It's funny, I'm writing a, my second book. The first one was a nonfiction, the second one was a fiction. And it's uh, going to tell the multi-generational trauma story. Modern day is a firefighter, but two generations back, now you're in World War II era. Um, because I think, you know, that's that's just it. The way that you get to the hearts and minds of people is through the screen. Not many people are reading these days. So I think, but I think there's a real desire for, you know, real stories, powerful and you know, more often than not true stories. Um, but in the military vein as well, because in the British SAS origin story, we've had a mini series already. I think um, there's a film coming out now. So I think it's a really good environment. And when Masters of the Air really, you know, lands, they, they hopefully will be the right time for no better place to die. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a strange thing. Um, Hollywood wants to count itself as a literary uh, area doesn't want to be the great unwashed wasteland out there. They read books and many times they'll grab a book and option it and then turn it into a script and off it becomes, <coughs> but they want that trigger. They want that book. Uh, so somebody's reading, uh, not everybody that we'd like uh, but, but for us as authors, we'd like everybody to have their nose buried in a book all the time, especially the book that we wrote. Uh, that's not happening. Uh, I get it. But it, it's, there's a squeeze on in Hollywood production. As I mentioned, uh, the, the, uh, the theatrical experience, the business of going every weekend to see a, a movie on the, on the big screen. Um, COVID put paid to that for the most part. Um, and it has never come back. It struggles to come back. And, and, these, and movies will, will get a week-long run at some Metroplex. But for the most part, people want to be watching that stuff at home. And, and what that means for us as writers is that we've got to make sure what we write will fit on that screen rather than demand the huge uh, uh, IMAX or, or uh, widescreen uh, treatment. 
it's, it's unfair. It's unfortunate. But it's the nature of our beast. We've got to modify what we're doing. Hell, I've, uh, when you talk about no better place to die, I have pitched it not only as, a, as an epic widescreen theatrical release, I've divided it up into 10 episodes so that we can do it as a miniseries. And that'll probably be the way it happens, uh, depending on a lot of things like the success of Masters of the Air. Yeah. Well, let's get to that then. So talk to me about who initially picked up that story and then walk me through the beginning of it. And then let's get to, to the impact that COVID had on production. Well, as usual, um, I had read uh, Don Miller's book, uh, Masters of the Air. Um, simply because I, that's what I read. I read that stuff for, for fun. And typically, as it was with the Pacific, as it was with uh, uh, Band of Brothers, the phone rang and it was Tom Hanks. And he said, hey, listen, we got this thing. And I said, what thing? And he said, we're, we're going to do the 8th Air Force in the European Theater of Operations. And I said, ah, I know where this comes from. Steven Spielberg's dad, was a flight crewman, a combat flight crewman in World War II. So I said, that's it, isn't it? He said, yeah, he finally got to me. We got to do this. But he said, it's going to be huge. You know, 50, 100 people all the time in, you know, 11 people in an aircraft. Uh, and, and it's going to take a lot of money. So we don't want to screw it up. We don't want to short shrift it. We want to get it right. And I said, well, what do you, you know, I'm not an aviator, Tom. And he said, yeah, but you're a soldier. He said, and... The theory is, and he believes it because Tom's a, his, a military historian in his own right. Uh, he said they had to become soldiers before they became airmen. I said, that's right. Well, that's what we do. We train them to be soldiers and then let the experts uh, take over and teach them about flying in a, in a 17 and all that sort of thing. And I said, well, yeah, I guess that's a good idea. And, and I went, we put together, my exo and I put together a 12-day syllabus. And every day in that classroom uh, in UK, we had 50 people. And we did, we, we approached it with a sort of a crawl, walk, run. Um, so we did everything from, you know, what kind of knot do you put in your khaki tie? And, and we got through all of that. Um, what's the difference between the way a civilian carries himself and the way a soldier carries himself? How do you, how do you detect that? And then all the way up to right up to putting them in the aircraft, uh, teaching them emergency escape routes and how to load bombs and, and all that sort of thing. And for that part, since we had no practical experience in that stuff, uh, we had to do a ton of research. And fortunately, uh, we had a bunch of experts that were over there who'd, who'd flown B-17s and and had maintained them. And, and to give you an idea of the extent that they went on this thing, I can't, can't tell you what the budget is because that, that's still classified information, but um, we had two full-scale uh, B-17s built and had them constantly on the runway out there at, at the, what, the, the location that we made to be Thorpe Abbott's um, in, uh, in East Anglia. And uh, those things, you could, you could do them like a remote control car. You could actually drive them around. They do everything but fly. And they were correct down to the absolute, to the rivets were correct. And, uh, and so when, when the kids would get in 
those aircraft in one of the gunnery positions or in the pilots or co-pilot seat, bombardier navigator up in the nose. They were they were surrounded by the real stuff. And so I think that added to our ability to uh, to to force versimilitude. And then we we did, uh, you know, most people nowadays are used to the business of acting to green screen. You know, you, you project a green screen behind the actors. And then later on, by computer magic, you could put whatever you want to on that green screen. And it serves as a background. Well, we took it a huge leap beyond that in this thing we called the volume unit. And it was uh, literally the whole section of the aircraft involved was surrounded by monitors. And and you could, the, the airplanes were flying from various directions and fighters were coming in and flak was exploding. And you were in it, you were right there in the middle, not, not just a one dimensional looking, you were right in the middle of that. And it was amazing to watch it. And fortunately, you know, I, I think I was 10 and a half months uh, in UK on that film. And uh, uh, I watched it every day and it was just absolute magic. But that's it. Making that film was also, uh, it was a technical nightmare. But the, the guys who can do that stuff um, were able to do it. The problem was we had this COVID thing hanging over our heads. And, and the UK took it very seriously. So everybody had to be mashed constantly. We had to stay away from each other in a lunch line. Um, every day we had three or four tests, you know, to see if we were COVID positive. And God forbid one of the actors would be. Uh, and then we were shut down for a week. You know, while he he got cleared to, to get back on the set or we had to scramble the schedule. So it was it was absolutely a nightmare uh, to get it done. The neat thing is we had the right people. Um, everybody was feeling the same pain in the ass over this thing. So they 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 understood what was going on and, and they were uh, attempting to get by. it. But I'll tell you, uh, we called them the covid cops. And I mean, there, there must have been a hundred of them. You couldn't, you couldn't swing a cat in UK without hitting one of these COVID specialists. And, and you know, I, I don't want to, well, maybe I do want to belittle the panic over this sort of thing, but, uh, but it was a bit much. And uh, I can understand the liability situation and so on and so forth. You, you don't want to, you know, get somebody really sick. And, but we were all healthy young people or they were healthy. I wasn't young. But but the point is, that, you know, we it, it to me, it wasn't that big a threat. It was like getting the flu. So you had to stay in bed for a week and then you went back to work. But it, it grinds and it stays with you. You know, it's like a burr under your saddle, if you will, or that one weird noise in your car. That you know what the hell that is, but it's always there. That's what the COVID deal is like. I've had this discussion with a lot of people. I mean, I actually ended up putting an extra episode out each week when COVID first emerged just because I wanted to give people tools, you know, actionable things when they were told they couldn't leave their house and the beaches and the parks and the gyms were closed. So I bring on you anyone from nutritionists to sleep experts, so you name it, things that they can action. And where, I mean, firstly, where across the line for me is when we realized that there wasn't the efficacy from the vaccines that we were being told, and yet they were taking 
uniform jobs from people, people that have served for 10, 20, 30 years. The other thing was, though, that I think was so irresponsible is we did have a captive audience and whatever your views on it, because it was a real virus, like you said, but it was the underlying yeah. health of the individual that dictated if you just got sick and then were okay again or you died. Two, three years later, there were no you know, grand changes to improve the nation's health. There weren't, you know, boosting local farmers again, giving them incentives to you know, grow clean food. There weren't PE programs, you know, return to schools and real food being cooked in in school lunches. So this is what I really struggle with is the middle ground was, yes, it's a real virus, but yes, it's also killing people who are sick. So the answer is let's make people healthier. And that message was completely disregarded, not only here in the U.S., but in the U.K. as well. Yeah, I, it's certainly true. I mean, I certainly did get that message. Um, <clears throat> you know, as, as a guy who had to stay in shape all his life, it, it, it occurred to me that we need to get to the root of this and be healthier going in uh, or being on, on exposure rather than, you know, being in such sorry shape that, you know, we're going to get sick and die. Uh, that occurred to me, but you're right. Uh, I didn't hear a lot of people talking about it. I didn't hear a lot of people saying, look, improve your diet, be healthier. You'll, it'll, it'll stave off the potential effects of, uh, of COVID. And they were right. They're right. You're right. And they were right all along. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and the thing is, this is, this is going to affect the next virus. You know, it's, this is the point is that that conversation is going to reduce all the deaths, whether it's virus related, suicide, overdose, obesity related. I mean, all the things you're just pushing for a healthier country. But what we did is we ignored that. And and if you look at statistics, we're still getting more obese, more overweight, and the mental health crisis is growing. Yeah, we've got a real short memory. Um, and I'm worried, as, as clearly you are, uh, that what what lessons we were able to winkle out of the whole COVID experience, like being healthier going in and so on and so forth. I don't know that we're going to remember that. We have a really short-term memory about those things. And, and you're, you're in the middle of them, and people are falling over every day before you think, oh, I, I, this was like this in COVID, so why don't we do this? Yeah, I, and, and I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I don't know that the government is the answer. It rarely is. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, pre medical practitioners like you guys, you know, can, can advocate for that sort of thing. And, and I hope you do. Absolutely. Well, going back to the boot camp, in our last conversation, we talked about Platoon in the Jungles. We talked about Band of Brothers, um, I think Saving Private Ryan, separating Matt Damon from the cast and creating that kind of palpable dislike. What was unique about this boot camp and what were some of the notable stories you remember from the cast you worked with this time? Well, I, we did typically what I do in order to get their attention. Young, young men are sometimes like mules. You know, you've got to hit them right between the eyes with a two by four. And then suddenly they're awake and they're paying attention. So my, my two by four is physical training. And so we did a lot of that every day. We, we did physical training. And, and I think that piqued their interest. Why am I doing physical training when I fly a B-17 in my character? Because you need to soldier first. Because you need to understand this group mentality, that there's something more important than you. There's a mission and there's a unit, and that's more important than you as an individual. So we used PT, as I typically do, to start building 
that sort of relationship. And uh, also, as is typical with us, I insisted that nobody ever has their real name. They are that character and they begin to address themselves as that character and they understand uh, what that character is. Now, the one of the weird things about uh, Masters of the Air is we were tremendously officer heavy in uh, Band of Brothers and in the Pacific. Uh, for the most part, we dealt with enlisted men, the guys on the pointy end of the bayonet, the guys doing the fighting. But in this case, with the 8th Air Force and a B-17 heavy bomber group, in this case, the 100th bomb group heavy, um, flying B-17s, everybody was an officer practically. The only enlisted men were the gunners and the mechanics on the ground and all that sort of thing. So we were, we were tremendously officer heavy. And I was worried uh, going in that the, the people who, who worked 24 hours a day to keep these aircraft flying, to repair them and so on and so forth, would be underrepresented. Uh, we were fortunate uh, to have uh, Raf Law, uh, who's uh, Jude Law's son, uh, plays a senior enlisted maintainer, uh, a real character in, uh, in the 100 bomb group. And, uh, and he brought light to that sort of thing. And that was, that was fun. Uh, but the difficulty was that what I really needed was to get them in those B-17s, those ones that we had built that God knows how much money. Um, and I wasn't able to do that. Now, I, I really wanted to do a situation with our basic training element, boot camp, if you will. Uh, I wanted to do it the way we had often, always done, which is I own them for a period of two weeks or whatever it is. And they live with me. Uh, if, if, they're, if they're an infantryman, they live in a hole that they've dug in the ground uh, or they live in a barracks. Uh, and that I think that full immersion sort of really helps keep them in the mentality, in the mindset. Uh, because the 1940s is a, is a long time ago to these young men. Um, so we, we, we needed or we're looking for the opportunity constantly to remind them of the mindset uh, that, that the young men they're portraying had. Um, but we could do it for scheduling uh, purposes uh, and, uh, and production purposes. They just weren't available. To, we couldn't pull them out of the mill for two weeks and have them live with us in a barracks. Now I had, we got to thinking about it. My my exo Mike Stokey and I got to talking about it. We said, yeah. and he by the way he he had a, his dad was a B twenty nine pilot, and I had a uh, uh, an uncle who was a reluctant tail gunner on seventeen. <laughs> a reluctant tail gunner. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so we'd had we'd had a few stories, uh, but we got to talk about this. You know, this is unusual. We always own them. And we're always able to manipulate the training chapter to fit and all that, whatever we see a hole, we fill it. But we're not going to have that opportunity. And Mike came up with something interesting. He said, look, isn't it true that the men in the 8th Air Force based in East Anglia at, at I don't know, 20, 40 U.S. bases, uh, former RAF bases, uh, they flew eight, 10 hours into a very dangerous mission. And assuming they made it back, they were literally in a, in a peacetime environment. 
they were there in the UK and they could go to the pub and they could have good food and they could sleep in a bed and all that sort of thing. She said, let's just apply that. Let's make that an element of our training. I said, yeah, yeah, I get that. That's uh, so we, we say the training day is your mission. Mission is over. Now you can go down to the hotel bar and do whatever you want to do and show up the next morning ready for PT. So we incorporated that element of what it was like to uh, to fly in the ETO into our training schedule. It's interesting looking back when you did the boot camp for us for Terminator 2 in Japan. Um, the cohesion that was formed by the time, I think it was three days we did, we did you. It was very short, but um, that team building. And when I compare it now to the lowering of standards in some of the fire and police uh, academies or orientations here, that's one of the missing pieces. The moment you lower standards, you lose that shared suffering. You lose that, um, you know, that unbreakable bond that, for example, when I was in California, Anaheim, those men are still my brothers to this day. I literally saw my old captain about three or four days ago. So with uh, shifting to kind of military first responders for a second, with this, uh, you know, World War II lens moving forward, Talk to me about the importance of that shared suffering and keeping that bar where it should be. Yeah, the, the, the hard part. Um, and, and you can do physical and psychological approaches to that team building sort of thing. Um, you know, running and chanting and feeling the power of that unit as boots in, in rhythm strike the ground. That's, that's a physical part of it. That's a sensory part of it. Um, and, and you, you focus on that sort of thing. But the difficulty lies in saying, look, um, you've got to think of it that way. You've got to think of this group as your family. And you've got to think of this group um, as the most important thing in the world to you. Uh, never mind Susie to home and never mind mom and dad and everything else. It's right in those 11 men that are in that B-17 with you. And you live or die, depending on your ability to trust them, to your, for your ability to, uh, to uh, be reassured that they've got your back, that they've got your, they're on your right and on your left, and you know that, and that gives you strength. So it's that strength of, of community. It's that strength of structure that it's the most difficult thing to build, but you must do it um, if you don't then anything else you try to teach them is going to be superficial. Absolutely. Well, we talked before we hit record, you know, compared to some projects that you've worked on, there's been less promotion. And so I'm so you know, honored that you came onto this podcast so I can help tell the story. So for people listening, you know, probably aren't aware of the story, give us an overview of these incredible men and what we're going to, you know, watch as we start diving into the series. Well, you're going to watch a jaw-dropping visual experience. And, and I know that sounds like hyperbole. And I guess it is, but damn it, that's what it is. I mean, you just, you, you gasp at some of the things you'll see in this thing. Uh, and that's the special effects guys. And, and the special effects are really the, the star of the show. But Masters of the Air uh, tells the story of the 100th Bomb Group Heavy, a B-17 uh, bomb group. Uh, within the uh, the American Eighth Air Force, and uh, and you get to know you get you get a view of that story by getting to know the characters, 
and the characters were, were some pretty weird ducks. There was a reason that um, the 100 bomb group was called the Bloody 100, is they took some casualties. And you get to see, you get to see the effect of taking those casualties on the unit and unit morale and how, how they had to struggle so hard to keep that morale up. And that goes back to having built that team so that when in the fictional area, when somebody dies or when a crew is lost, you feel it. You feel it because you trained right next to those guys. Um, and so that, that was handy. But I think, I think the overall emphasis was to tell the story of a, of a bomb group involved in the air war in the ETO, the European Theater of Operations, uh, and flying those long missions across the channel into uh, Nazi-occupied Europe, Western Europe, um, and how desperately dangerous that was. Um, the, you hear a lot about casualties in one operation, one military operation, or the, it, it pales in comparison with what the average B-17 bomber group suffered. I mean, they lost aircraft right, left, and indifferent. Sometimes the crew got out of them. Most times they did. Uh, and so they, one, one bomber goes down, that's 11, 11 souls lost, if not more. Um, and, and you see, or, or I think the purpose of making the series was to shine that light on those guys. Here's an aspect of the war, that big war that maybe you didn't know, maybe you didn't understand, unless you're history nerds like you and I are, you know, have buried your face in all that history. Um, you'd have, you're going to have no idea how dangerous and deadly it was to fly those B-17s over occupied Europe uh, through acres and acres of flax so thick you could walk on it. And uh, through uh, uh, German Luftwaffe aircraft that were attacking you and buzzing in and out of the in and out of the uh, the formations, firing rockets. Uh, it was a deadly business. Um, and you're flying at 10,000 feet. That was a whole other structure. I mean, half the time you see these actors that are wearing a, an oxygen mask. Well, they have to. I mean, because they're above 10,000 feet, there's no oxygen. Um, but that makes the, the storytelling difficult. You got to do it all with your eyes. Um, and they did a great job at it. Uh, they really did. But I think people will have no idea of, of that they wore electric suits that were actually plugged into the electrical system of the aircraft just to keep them. They, you, couldn't, you couldn't handle anything without gloves. And if you had a wounded man in, in the aircraft hit by a piece of shrapnel or something, the business of, of keeping him alive was going to be was going to be vastly complicated by the fact that you're up at 10 15,000 feet um, so all of those are insights I think that uh, that masters of the air is going to bring and I think that um, as well as just being a, a, a special effects extravaganza which it is uh, audiences will come away with a little understanding of that and say, my God, was it really that dangerous? And the answer is, yeah, it was. Someone made a comment, one of my guests recently, that 
a lot of, you know, certainly high school, but even college level people that are entering the workforce, a lot of our members of the military weren't even born when 9-11 happened. So it's history yeah. to them, you know? And so you go back all the way to World War II. I mean, that's history to me, but at least, you know, my my father and mother grew up during the, the bombings in London. They were evacuated to the countryside. My grandfather shot down the first German bomber over the Orkney Islands. So I had, you know, at least some kind of connection to this. But I think this is what's so important about these, you know, stories being told is especially that conflict. I mean, I think most of us would agree that if there was one one war that was truly justified it was world war ii to stop the horrendous atrocities i mean my family would be speaking german if we'd failed it's that simple so uh you know to educate the people and when i spoke to uh, don graves the world war ii marine um you know he was kind of heartbroken about what he was seeing in the us at the moment so i think by being reminded of the true, true sacrifice, you know, that protected our shores of the men and women um, in the World War II era, I think is is imperative so that we have gratitude for what we're experiencing today. Well, I hope so. I mean, certainly in, in my personal case, or the, the mission statement of my company, uh, that's what we're after. I mean, to shed some long overdue and richly deserved light on those very aspects. Um, and I think, I think we've done a good job at it. And I think Masters of the Air is uh, a great addition. Absolutely. I want to hit one more area, then we'll go to some closing questions. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was either this, this last year or maybe the year prior. I remember seeing you posting where you were talking. You were actually on the beaches in, uh, I believe it was in Normandy for the D-Day anniversary. So talk to me about that experience. Well, it's I've had it. <clears throat> I've had that experience more than once. I've been fortunate to be invited to Bastogne, uh, to uh, uh, the, the Point du Hawk area, uh, to uh, uh, Utah and uh, and uh, Omaha Beach. Uh, and there's something awe-inspiring, I guess, is, is the word. When you stand there and you look around and you say, "Jesus, this place was absolutely." Chock a block with dying men and, and people trying to charge inland uh, when when all this happened. Or there's the area that the Rangers had to climb up uh, at Point to Hawk. Um, or or frigid as hell in in Bastogne in the winter, and you're standing out in the Boisac and uh, and looking at the holes where they where they were. And that's all inspiring. I mean, uh, if you know the story. Um, and I think because of Band of Brothers and Pacific and, and now Masters of the Air, you will know the story. Uh, you wouldn't be there if you didn't understand there was something special here. Um, so I think I think that's handy, uh, but it never ceases to, uh, to create within me a, a desire to walk away from the matting crowd and to just stand there for a minute and say, God, thank you. God, they did what they did. I don't know how they did it, but thank God they did. I always find that moment. And, and when you're standing on those beaches in Normandy, uh, or you're standing on the island of Peleliu in the Pacific, or you're, you're, uh, you're trying to figure out how to stay halfway warm at the, at the Bois Jacques in, in Bastogne, I always find that moment. I say, back off from it a minute. Back off from it a minute and look and just thank the Lord that they did what they did. 
Absolutely. And especially when you kind of look at the where technology was back then, there was no GPS. I mean, all, all these things that we rely on now, it really reframes you know, the incredible you know, um, task that was given to them. So I want to transition to some closing questions. Um, last time we spoke, you'd already had a, you know, a host of books out. So between six years ago and now, talk to me about your books. Have you added to your collection? Yeah, um, I've, I've got a, a great uh, Korea, Korean War book. Uh, I've always felt that uh, the Korean War was underserved in literature because the guys who fought in Korea at the Chosen Reservoir and the, and the Naktong Pocket and uh, the Pusan Perimeter, those guys were the ones who taught me and taught me to stay alive when I had my own uh, wartime experience. So I thought they were underserved, and I wanted to tell a story about them. And I wrote a book called uh, Korean Odyssey, uh, which has done very well. I'm, I'm gratified that it has, um, and made one of these days become a movie when we can move into Korea for World War II. Um, and I have continued to um, uh, get my recurring character, Shake Davis, uh, the retired Marine gunner, into more and more adventures. I think since we talked, I've probably added four books to the uh, the, the continuing uh, Shake Davis saga. Uh, so I mean, I'm and I'm staying busy. I'm, I'm writing. Uh, we've started a new uh, online essay uh, that I guess people call it a blog, but I hate that word. Um, so it's it's a an essay, a screed, some thoughts that I, that we're we're putting online. Uh, so I'm 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 taking this opportunity. I think uh, and now that I'm almost eighty, I'm, I'm taking this opportunity to uh, reflect a bit, and that that comes with uh, the business of telling your story. Now, with Korea, firstly, why did it become the forgotten war? Why you know after such. Um, celebration of the um triumphs of world war ii did our men and women that served in korea have almost like kind of the opposite like it seemed like it was buried a little bit in history well i think people wanted to ignore it they'd been through four years of uh, and, and in the case of the uk uh eight years of war um and and serious sacrifices that people had to make on the home front and uh and the constant flood of casualties coming in from various worldwide battlefronts. I don't think they wanted to, they didn't ignore it completely, but they didn't want to saturate themselves in it like they did with what was happening in World War II. Uh, and it was a little difficult. Most people couldn't find Korea on a map. It was a little difficult to, uh, to identify with what was going on there. Uh, stop the demon communist incursion from china i don't care what i care about can i get tires from my car um and and so i think it just got sort of shuffled into the background um and that's unfair because it was a brutal difficult fight and um and and well fought uh there were some tech uh, strategic mistakes uh, made up up on the eisenhower truman level uh, but for the guys, you know, trying to survive in Korea and, and uh, fight off the North Korean and Chinese communists, it was a brutal war. And I think underserved for a lot of reasons that we discussed. 
So I said, what the hell? I'll, I'll write a book about it. And I did. Uh, it's fiction. Follows uh, one uh, one Marine rifle company from spool up from post-war skeleton existence, post-World War II skeleton existence, spooling up into becoming uh, a, a solid fighting force. It follows one company. And, uh, and the characters, I think, are... I like to think I write good characters, in particular when I, when they're Marines and, and I have an affinity for that sort of life. So that's, uh, that's why I think uh, it, the Korean War is underserved and why I was prompted to write a book about it. Beautiful. Well, what about books that other people have written the last six years? Is there one or two that you'd recommend that you've read recently? Well, I, you know, I, I think I read everything that, uh, that, uh, is written by Vietnam. Uh, and it, there's been a couple that have really uh, tripped my trigger. There's one called A Silent Cadence uh, that, that has come out, uh, which is terrific. Uh, just just a wonderful uh, bit of storytelling. Um, that one's caught my eye. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm reading all sorts of, uh, I'm, I'm Kindle addicted. And so I, everywhere I go, I've got this thing in front of me and I'm, I'm researching it but i think i think probably uh a quiet cadence probably is is the one that has caught my eye most recently and what about documentaries and films well you know for a guy like me and a guy like you you can't get enough documentaries i mean you, there's not enough time in the day uh, but i'm eclectic about those things I, I try not to focus on one area because because of what I do and, and the nature of the films I work on or the television series I work on, you have to have a really broad based knowledge. Uh, just because I was a Marine doesn't mean I don't need to know the army. Don't need to know the air force or, or uh, because I fought in Vietnam doesn't mean I don't need to know world war two or Korea. Um, and so when it, it, there's such a, a plethora of, of those documentaries out there, uh, Hell, the, the, just the History Channel alone uh, will take you all over the world uh, in, in, you know, everything from you know, the Peloponnesian Wars right up to the, today in Afghanistan. Um, so you can pick and choose. And if, if I'm feeling like, well, I don't, I don't know that I know enough about uh, the uh, Hindu Kush and uh, I'll find somebody, some documentary and go after it. Beautiful. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? You know, I'm, I'm not sure I do. Uh, it, it would be great. I've, I've, the whole uh, first responder law enforcement thing here in Texas has been a, a revelation to me. Um, it's it's a last one of the last bastions of that great respect for law enforcement. You know, I, I, if I were you, I'd go find a retired Texas Ranger and say, let me, you, you want to, you want to know what's behind the badge. How about that? You know? Fantastic. And I'm sure. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure where people can find you, what do you do to decompress these days? Well, uh, I'm still uh, doing PT at my age. I'm still running, um, uh, three, four, and five miles, uh, three times a week. Um, it's still lifting weights. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, 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 I've 
found a whole new audience here in small town Texas. So they all want to hear the war stories and they all want to hear the movie stories and everything. So I'm 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 pretty popular in, in a small town. I'm the, you know the big fish in a small pool. Uh, and so I I spent a lot of time getting to know uh, these folks. Uh, I didn't meet many of those kind of folks in in LA. So it's a revelation here, uh, and I'm 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 doing a lot of sort of inadvertent sociological research, I guess. Uh, and and enjoying it quite a bit. Beautiful. Yeah, my in-laws live in San Antonio, so next time I'm over there, I'll have to give you a call and see if you're around. You should, yeah. You're not far, a couple hours. Absolutely. All right, well, then the very last question, if people want to learn more about Masters of Air or find you online, where are the best places? Well, I think, you know, without getting into the alphabet soup here, um, it, really, all they've got to do is look up Masters of the Air or... Uh, we have changed the designation of our company. We used to be Warriors Incorporated. We're now Warriors Global because we work all over the world. Um, and I think, you know, if you go to Warriors Global, it'll take you right to uh, some stuff about the making of Masters of the Air. And and uh, and, uh, and then you, you plug yourself into the podcast network like this one. And, uh, and God knows <laughs> how many I've done. Uh, so there, it's out there if you want to hear about it. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so much. Yeah, firstly for originally coming on. I mean, that was I think 15 years after I'd worked with you in in Japan. But here we are now, 2024. The uh, the show will be out by the time this airs. So I think January 26th was the date. But uh, I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming back onto the podcast. Joe, always a pleasure. It's it's nice to spend time with a kindred spirit, and you're one. Well done.